and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Submit. Obey. Serve. Sounds like a motto for some kind of dystopia, or perhaps ancient Rome. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ, with this sermon entitled The Gospel in the Household, which covers Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. For more information, to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting for the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but by sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant us all that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we ask now, would you take this text, Lord, with, with all that it contains, and Lord, will you use it to bind up our broken hearts and to break our hardened ones in and through the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you do this in his name? Amen. You know, I think we've all had the experience of being at a party or in a social gathering where the conversation is going really well. Everybody's laughing and joking and enjoying each other's presence. And then somebody, who we will not name, somebody crosses the threshold and says something that's a social faux pas. Something that maybe contradicts the beliefs and the values of people in the room, and all of a sudden, that comfortable conversation becomes a very uncomfortable one, doesn't it? You start looking down and trying to figure out, how can I get myself out of this situation in the most gracious way possible? In a lot of ways, that's this text. I mean, even as we read those words, I'm guessing there were probably more than a few of you who sort of shifted uncomfortably in your seats because Paul, he's been rolling right along, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, and all of a sudden here with this language of wives and husbands and slaves and masters and submission and obedience, suddenly things start to feel hard. And there's a lot of reasons that we get uncomfortable when we get to this text. On the one hand, we get uncomfortable because we live in a culture that values personal autonomy above almost anything else. 
We inhabit this world where we think of ourselves as our own highest authority. We get to decide who we are going to be and what we are going to do and how we're going to live. And, and anyone or anything that would contradict that we see as either immoral or even abusive. And so when you come to this text, which is calling us to basically lay that down, there's a part of us that bristles. But on the other hand, there is also this reality that we as the church need to confess. This is also a text that has been far too often abused. And some of you know that personally. It has been used to justify abuse in marriages. It's been abused to justify abuse in parenting. And in our own country's history, it has been used to justify an institution that we now thankfully recognize as reprehensible, that of slavery. And so we get to this text, and we shift uncomfortably in our seats because we're really not sure what we're supposed to do. What I want us to hear this morning is that what Paul is giving us here, it's actually good news. And if we're going to see it as such, we need to first pull back the lens and remember everything that Paul has been doing. For three chapters, Paul has been patiently unfolding the mercy of Christ, the beauty of a God who so loved his people that he would go down into the depths to bring us out of death and into life. This God who enters this world where we say there are some people who matter and some people who don't, the haves and the have-nots, and Christ washes it all away and says, here there is no more Greek or Jew, slave or free. Christ is all and in all, as it says in verse 11. He has made us a part of this community where the old is fading away and the new is coming. We are putting off the old ways and putting on the new ways, and we have become a part of this new creation that is breaking into this world that is still so full of sin and death. But then that leaves a question. If all these things are true, the humble are being elevated and the proud are being brought low. We are all loved by the same God, united to the same Christ, recipients of the same Spirit, heirs of the same inheritance as adopted children. What does that actually look like in the day-to-day -day realities of our lives? Is this just some sort of spiritual reality that exists on an ethereal plane, or is this something that speaks into the nitty-gritty of our everyday lives, where when we wake up on Monday morning, we are wives and husbands and children and parents, and in the case of the church in Colossae, slaves and masters? How do those seemingly disparate realities converge? This is Paul's answer. He takes this literary form that would have been common in the Roman world, this form of a household code. These descriptions that you find in Roman and Jewish literature that would kind of lay out how a family, how a household was supposed to be governed, and Paul takes that form and then he, if you pardon the word, he gospelizes it. 
He doesn't just echo the cultural norms. Instead, he subverts them from the inside out with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that honors us as children of the living God and brings not slavery but freedom and not death but life. And he starts with this relationship that sits at the heart of every household, the relationship between a wife and her husband. He says in verses 18 to 19, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You know, this is a text that made George Bernard Shaw say that Paul was the eternal enemy of women. That's a pretty harsh assessment. And yet, if we're really honest and we look at the culture around us, that's kind of how our culture receives these commands, isn't it? I mean, if you think of the last movie or TV show or book you read where you encounter a couple that is explicitly religious, what is almost always revealed to be true by the time you finish that film or TV show or book? If they are trying to abide by this, the relationship is almost always revealed to be abusive. The man has all the control and the woman has none. She is just there to be quiet and to do whatever the man says. And so we get to this text and there is a piece of us that flinches when we read it. And we have to be honest that there are some in the church who have used it in exactly that way. But that's not what this text is actually doing. And to understand this, we have to remember the world into which Paul is speaking because the Roman culture, the Roman world, they would have reacted to this text just as strongly as we do. The difference is the reason why. Because here's what it was to be in Rome. In the time Paul is writing this, there were 140 Roman men for every 100 Roman women. And before you think that that's just the freak anomaly of infant mortality rates, it just sort of happened by chance, the reason for that disparity, the reason there is 140 men and only 100 women, is because if you gave birth to a baby girl, you were far more likely to take that living child and throw it in the trash than you were if it was a boy, because you saw boys as inherently more valuable. We have letters of Roman fathers writing to their pregnant wives and saying, if you give birth while I'm gone and it's a boy, name him this. If it's a girl, throw her out with no explanation. As though it is as common as giving somebody the, a list to take to the grocery store. If you were a wife, the value you brought to the home, it was simply this. Could you produce a legitimate heir, a son? And if you produced that heir, you immediately would slip down the hierarchy of the family below not only your husband and his parents, that sounds like fun, right? But below your children. So much so that if there was a disaster and someone from the family had to be left behind, guess who got left? Not women and children first, fathers and children first. The wives got left behind. Why? Because as Josephus said, women were seen as inherently inferior. And you see this play out in the Roman household codes. And there's two things that I think are notable in them that are applicable to this text here. One is this, women are spoken about, they are never spoken to. 
which tells you something about how women were viewed, doesn't it? Women are told that they're to be in servitude. They're told they're to be in submission. But they are never addressed as though they are individual moral agents. And second, husbands are told to rule their wives, to govern them, but we don't have any record of a Roman household code calling husbands to love their wives. Does Paul still sound like the enemy of women, or does he begin to sound a little bit like their friend? Paul, through the gospel, he is calling us as wives and husbands into a relationship of mutual submission, each one sacrificing out of love for the other. This relationship in which there are rules that govern it that are there not to enslave, but instead, as C.S. Lewis said, to protect us from the tyranny of the most selfish member. And he starts with wives. He says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And right away you should notice something significant. Who is he addressing as though they have moral agency? Women. He's not addressing them as though they are rote automatons or slaves to their husband's will. He's saying, no, I am calling you as one beloved in Christ to put yourself willingly, voluntarily under the direction of another. Not because you're inferior, but why? Because of Christ. Because you have been united to one whose glory was that he submitted to the Father for your sake and mine. And that submission, it was not his shame. It was the thing that makes him most beautiful. In him, we can submit freely because in him we have everything we require. And then Paul turns to husbands and he says something that's just as challenging, if not more so. He says to the husbands, love your wives. This is not a call to lead with an iron fist. This isn't a call to go around telling your wife to submit. Notice it doesn't tell you to do that. That's not your job. No, Paul says, here's what you're supposed to do as a husband. You're to love your wife as Christ loved you. You're to love her regardless of how she treats you, regardless of whether she is submissive to you, regardless of how she responds to you. You are to love her in a way where your desires are put to death so that she would be blessed and encouraged and would flourish in life. And if you find your desires in conflict, if you and your wife are at odds with each other about something and that issue is not one of sin or faithfulness to Jesus, guess whose desires, Paul says, need to die? The husband's. He, he is calling here for a love that could only be born of divine grace, and you know this because of what follows next. Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The Greek is literally, don't be embittered with them. Now just think about this for a moment. If husbands are being called to sacrifice their desires for the sake of their wife, to lay their lives down as Christ laid his down for the church, what is almost always, if we're doing that in our own power, and I know this from experience, what is almost always the fruit of that kind of service? 
If somebody doesn't respond the way that we want them to, we get what? Bitter. If we sacrifice something and somebody doesn't respond with gratitude or doesn't respond by sacrificing in turn, we get angry, don't we? Our hearts turn against that person, and Paul says, that may be true in the world, but that's not to be true of you. This is love that is to be freely offered and freely given, born of the reality that you are now in Christ who shows his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Not when you improved, not when you got better, but when you were at your very worst. And that love, it is yours still. He is calling husbands and wives into this relationship of mutual submission where the husband leads, but it's not a leading in superiority, it's a leading in sacrifice. Rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then Paul moves to a second relationship, that of children and their parents. And once again, we find ourselves with this counterculturally subversive passage where Paul, through the gospel, he is lifting up the lowly and bringing down the proud. He says to children, this thing that to our modern ears is, is offensive, he says, obey in everything. Not some things, not the things you like or the things that you agree with. Obey in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, we're scandalized by that statement, or at least if you're a child in the room, you probably are scandalized by that statement. I was in high school for sure. And the Romans, they would have been scandalized by it too. But once again, that scandal is for completely different reasons. We're scandalized because it says there's an authority that's higher than us, and we don't like that. The Romans are scandalized because you're saying a child has a choice. They're scandalized because you are treating them as though they're an adult. And you're saying they have moral agency and they're not just supposed to sit there and to be quiet. Paul in the gospel, he's taking these two realities that the world would tear apart and he's saying, no, both these things are true. You are an individual beloved by God, an heir of salvation in Christ Jesus, one who is beloved, and you have moral responsibility, and yet at the very same time, you are a part of a community that God has designed with certain structures that if you do not conform to, you will suffer because God designed them for your good. You know, we so often, this was definitely me in high school, we so often think of parents as irritants. God, God gives us parents as a means of grace. And I've got to be really careful here because there are some of you who have experienced abuse from your parents. Some of you have had those who took these passages and used them to clobber you, and I want you to hear this very carefully. If that is the case, we would love to talk with you. But when parents are following Christ, or for that matter, simply being good parents in common grace, God has given us parents to take us at this place where we are at our weakest and our most vulnerable, and to nourish and protect us so that we would grow up in safety and then one day go out into the world and able to live and live well. 
We obey so long as our parents don't call us to disobey Jesus because we see them as a gift of God's grace and we do it not because we're inherently inferior, but why? Because it pleases Jesus. Because it reflects the heart of the one who so loved us, he obeyed not just his heavenly father to the point of a cross, but his earthly parents who were sinners even though he was perfect. And then Paul turns to fathers in particular and parents in general. And he says, this is not an excuse to run roughshod over your kids. Verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. There's an old Robert Duvall movie called The Great Santini, which is a, it's a classic film. If you haven't seen it, it'll make you cry. It's a little dark, but it's a good movie. And in the movie, Robert Duvall is this Marine who can't seem to differentiate between his kids and his soldiers. The line between his children and those under his command, it is blurred for him so that in his mind it's one and the same. And so when his family gets transferred to a new base in a new town, he lines his kids up just like they were soldiers, and he begins to give them their marching orders. And he says this, you're Marine kids, and you can chew nails while other kids are sucking cotton candy. You're Mitchums. A Mitchum is a thoroughbred, a winner all the way, gets the best grades, wins the most awards, and excels in sports. A Mitchum never gives up. And when you watch that scene, his kids are all sitting there and they're rolling their eyes. And as the audience, you're kind of chuckling to yourself because it seems so ridiculous. And then you watch over the course of the movie as that laughter slowly begins to turn bitter in your mouth because you see these standards, this expectation. It is a burden that has been placed on the shoulders of his children and they can't bear it. His son is literally cracking under the weight, and near the end of the film, there's this moment where he screams those words back at his dad and says, you've told me to be a Mitchum, you told me to live this way, and I can't. I'm not you. Paul says, in Christ, may that never be us. We are to care for our children in the same way that our Heavenly Father cares for us. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, Paul refers here to the constant nagging or belittling of a child. The refusal to allow children to be people in their own right instead of carbon copies of their parents or their parents' fantasies. Ouch. Children treated like this become discouraged or dispirited hearing continually, both verbally and non-verbally, that they are of little value, they come to believe it, and either sink down in obedient self-hatred or overreact with boastful but, self, but anxious self-assertion. The parent's duty is, in effect, to live out the gospel to the child. That is, to assure their children that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are, not for who they ought to be, should have been, or might, if they only would try harder, become. How are we to parent our children in Christ? 
in the same way that our Heavenly Father parents us. Gently, compassionately, with hearts full of mercy, disciplining never out of anger but only for their good in a way that reflects the beauty of Jesus, full of grace and truth. And then Paul turns to one last relationship, and frankly, this is the hardest one. Slaves and their masters. Look at verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, not just out of fear of punishment or to look good in front of others as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, no matter how degrading it may look, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you. I am really nervous right now because this is super sensitive ground. And so there's a couple things before we dig into this text that I need to make clear first. One, while all slavery is evil, not all slavery is the same. There is a vast difference between slavery as you see it in the Old Testament, which when it's governed by God's law almost becomes untenable if you pay attention to how it's governed, and slavery in first century Rome. And there is a greater gap still between both of those kinds of slavery and the kind that we had here in the United States. I would argue to you that they are progressively worse. And that's probably a conversation for another day. But the second thing that we need to remember in all of this is this. While all those other relationships we've just mentioned, marriage and parents and children, are grounded in creation as you see in other places in Scripture, Scripture never says the same thing about slavery. Rather, when Scripture speaks of slavery... It speaks of it in a way that is similar to divorce, where it is this thing that is the fruit of human sin that God allows for a moment because of the hardness of our hearts, but that God hates and hates profoundly. And you know this because what happens when God's people are in slavery in Egypt? God's heart is moved, and not to leave them in bondage, but to bring them out. This is something that the black church caught a hold of in a powerful way all the way back in the 1700s, and for some reason we missed. But Scripture also doesn't do that thing that we would in our 21st century sensibilities would want them to. It doesn't explicitly call for abolition. It doesn't have a passage where Paul says this is evil and there's a couple things we have to remember here, and one of those is this. We can't assume the same political power and agency in the first century as we now experience today. 
the idea that you could somehow enact change would have been unthinkable for Paul or the church at this time. Remember, this is a tiny ragtag group of people. It's the church at its very infancy. But second, and this is a bad analogy in some ways, so bear with me, it would be a bit, for Paul to call for the abolition of slavery would be a bit like a fish calling for the abolition of water. Not in the sense that water is life-giving, but in the sense that it's just what is. It's the only world you know. You, you don't have a context for a world apart from its existence. It is everywhere, and it seems like it's always been everywhere. And yet Paul, sitting there looking at that world going, I can't fix this. I can't change it. I want you to get free if you can, as he says in other places. But here is how Christ would call you to inhabit that space while you were still here. And in the commands that he gives both to slaves and their masters, you see the seeds that would ultimately lead to slavery's destruction. Because Paul first does this, he dignifies slaves and their work. And in doing so, he dignifies you in yours. If you were in Rome and you were a slave... You were a nothing and a nobody. You were literally seen as this product that was to be used and to be expended. And if you died in that service, that was seen as something of, that wasn't that big of a deal. Your body wasn't your own. Your life wasn't your own. Your marriage wasn't your own. Your children weren't your own. And yet, what does Paul do here yet again? He speaks to those who are at the bottom of the social pile and he treats them as beloved children of God. He tells them that yes, you have earthly masters, but because they are only earthly masters, they are not your ultimate master. And while you may live in a world where the threat of punishment is what forces you to obey, Christ introduces you to a world where instead it is the promise of reward that encourages you to obey, not because you're slaves, but because you are worshipers of the living God, who promises to give you the reward, that inheritance that is that which belongs to children of God saved in Christ. And that reward, it is not here in this world, but it is in the life to come, and there is something else waiting in the life to come too. Verse 25, justice. That justice that may be delayed for a moment, but in the end it is coming, and here is the hope of every slave. God shows no partiality. He doesn't care how big or strong you were in this world. He is the one who is just, and his justice will come in full. And then Paul turns to the masters, and in Calvin's words, he brings them under control. He masters the masters. He reminds them that while the world says they're gods, God says, no, you're just men. And one day you're going to answer to me. And so the people that have been entrusted to your care, you had better treat them justly and fairly because whether you believe it or not, you have a master in heaven whom one day you will have to answer to. The people in your care, they are children of God. Act accordingly. A few weeks ago, 
stumbled on this letter. It was written by a former slave named James Pennington. And it was one that after he'd been freed after the Civil War that he wrote to his former slave master because he heard that his slave master was nearing death. And what he said in that letter was basically this. I wish that I could write to you as a father or a brother in the faith, but I can't. Because while you confess Christ, you contradict that confession with the way you treated me and my family and so many others like us. You put our names on receipts next to cattle and you treated us like cattle. And you denied us the ability to obey Christ's commands. And so I am writing to you because I fear for your immortal soul. And I would have you know the grace that is available to you in Christ Jesus who has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and could reconcile even people who the world has torn apart as much as us. Repent. But if you do not, then this voice of mine that you seem to think is of such little value, on the day of judgment, that voice will be a voice that God hears. And it will have equal weight with your own. And God shows no partiality. He doesn't quote this passage, but he seems to have understood it, doesn't he? It's a challenge, not just to them in their day, it's a challenge to us in ours where sometimes we've been placed in these positions of authority and because we have wealth or power or position, we think we have rights that others do not. And Paul says, no, that is something for you to steward in a way that honors the Lord. You know, what, what is Paul doing in all these relationships? He is calling us back in the nitty-gritty context of our everyday life, to look on the Jesus who humbles the proud and elevates the humble. To submit ourselves to his lordship in every way, in a way that loves our brothers and sisters and honors them as equal heirs in the inheritance that we have received in the Lord, to give our lives away as Christ gave his life away for us. And yet, as we read this text... You know, I can't speak for you. I don't know what you're feeling, but I can tell you what I feel. I see my failure. I feel my inadequacy. I feel my inability. And I even feel that resistance in my heart against some of these things. And so the question that faces us is where do we go? Paul says there's only one place. It's to the feet of the all-sufficient Jesus. Because it is only in the presence of his gentle heart that our hard hearts will be melted. It is only in the presence of the one who out of love for us submitted to his Father and whose submission meant not our death but our life and it was not his shame but his glory that we will ever be able to submit in the way that God has called us to. 
It is only when we sit in the presence of the one who loved us when we were at our worst, when we hated him from the very heart and willingly gave up his life so that we would be brought into his family and would receive the inheritance that only he deserves, that we will ever have our hearts melted and be able to love those that God has placed in our care in the way that he intends. And while we cannot forget for a second that there will be a day when we will answer to the Lord for the things we have done and the way that we have treated each other, there is also this reality too. There is a God whose love is perfect and whose love never fails. And while we may stumble and fall over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, his heart, unlike ours, it never grows bitter. As Thomas Goodwin says, your very sins move him more to pity than to anger. When you sin, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall not on you, but only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction, but his bowels, his mercy, shall be the more drawn out to you, and this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What shall separate us from Christ's love? What indeed? May we fly to our Savior, and may we cling to the one who has loved us, who even now holds us, and through his Spirit now empowers us to go out into this world and to follow him. Amen. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for a God who provides for us in the midst of our need, for one so kind and so tender, and we pray, Lord, in ever-increasing ways, Lord, would you melt our hard hearts with your gentle one. Would you show us the beauty of Jesus, and would we be more transfixed by that than by any other thing? Would you do this now? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.